Welcome to Your Grit Story Podcast, where we chat with founders, leaders, and changemakers to learn about their journey to make the future a reality. I'm Eric, your friendly host. Follow us on where you are tuning in or find us on any social media channels to catch highlights and snippets of our episodes. Let's be inspired by the stories while you create your great story. Alright, we are back on our next episode of Your Great Story Podcast and this is part of the NOCA series where we revisit those who went through the NUS Overseas College Program and went on to chase their passion to make an impact through starting up. And today, we are very excited to have a veteran with us. Hi, Vinod. Welcome to the show. Hey, Eric. How are you? Hi, Vinod. So widely known as the founder and CEO of uh, Money Smart, the all-in-one portal for personal finance. Vinod started Money Smart about 13 years ago, and we are here to unpack his journey and also to learn about his experience during the NUS Overseas College Program. So, Vinod, I'm very excited to jump into all this awesome stuff, but let's start by sharing with our listeners more so they can get to know more about you. On to you, Vinod. Sure. Thank you, Eric. Uh, really excited to be on the podcast today. So, my name is Vinod. I commonly go by the name Vin. So, I'm the founder and CEO of Money Smart. Been running this company for 13 years now, which is a, a long time in, in startup years. Not sure if we can be still counted as startup anymore. And have grown the company from kind of zero to what it is today. We have about 130 employees across the region. In my spare time, I enjoy longboarding, which is something I picked up over the last two years. Uh, so sort of a slightly larger skateboard, trying to uh, revisit my youthful days and still pretend I'm young. And I'm a parent of one. I have a five-year-old boy who's in K1 right now. So that's a bit about Nice, 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 nice. Yeah, also must be very fun age, uh, five years old, to play with. I hope that you're playing with him, the new spot that you are in. <laughs> yes. So given that we are in this series of uh, the NUS Overseas College program, let's let's dive in into this program. Could you share a little bit more? I know it's like so many years ago, right? Uh, can you share with us, our audience, about more of this program and how it helped you in your journey in starting up? Sure. So I went to Silicon Valley in 2005, 2006. Um, so I was in the eighth batch of, uh, of uh, NFC students in Silicon Valley. I would say, um, you know, my reason for applying for NFC was because I was already had sort of an inkling that I wanted to start my own company, but I had no idea how to go about doing that. And uh, so I applied for the NFC program, very fortunate to, to be able to, to get in. Um, and, you know, being on NFC was really a catalyst for me to, uh, I, I think the biggest value I got out of NFC was the confidence to just start and do something. Nobody has it all figured out on day one. Uh, you just have to have the confidence in yourself and the motivation to, to get started and actually do something. Um, being in Silicon Valley was incredibly inspirational, um, Interacting with a lot of uh, founders, not just founders, but also employee companies like YouTube and Facebook when they were still startups was phenomenal as an experience, right? Just understanding the early employee perspective, working in a startup myself, a small company, seeing what's going well, what are, you know, major mistakes that I see being made, at least as an employee from an experience point of view, you know, really shaped my perspective on how I wanted to run a company one day when I started one. So so I would say NOC was tremendously inspirational and, and definitely gave me the confidence to 
to go out there and start something. Right, yeah. I also remember the experience of being in the lecture hall in Stanford and the Instagram co-founder was sharing about his story as well. Mine was back in 2011, right? Also quite long ago, relatively, right? Definitely, definitely inspirational um, stories (laughs) and a lot of events and a lot of networking happening as well to connect with founders and investors in the space. So during the one-year stint, right? I believe you're also very active in the space. So what is one event or activity that was really close to your heart that you still remember until today? Funny story is I nearly got fired four times from my internship company. <laughs> the company that I was interning at in, uh, in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I think I had a very clear sense of what I wanted to get out of NOC. And for me, when I was interning at the company, when I kind of realized that it didn't check all the boxes that I need, I had to prioritize my time and go like, okay, I'll do what's expected of me at work. But, you know, I also need to balance it with networking with people out there, learning from other entrepreneurs and other companies to get a different perspective. I was working in a relatively small company where, I mean, I think it was less than 10 people. The founder and the boss was there expecting us to stay back every day till, you know, if you didn't go home. You had to stay until 10, 10 p.m. every night, right? That's how he judged your drive of being an entrepreneur. But for me, I, I felt I wasn't getting everything I wanted out of that. So that definitely left memorable impression. Um, he, you know, because I was clear on what I wanted, uh, you know, he was like, oh, you'll, you'll never be successful as an entrepreneur because you uh, don't have the drive to stay in the office till 10 p.m. I was like, not really. Uh, I, I don't I don't have the drive to be an employee, but I know exactly what I want to like. And in all the interns that went for that program, I think I'm one of the two or three that ended up actually starting something. So yeah, that was definitely a memorable experience. Definitely, definitely. I mean, it was five or four times and uh, having uh, to, to, you know, so-called to having to expect it to be staying too late. I think that is definitely something interesting. Um, Just to mention that you started something when you were in this program, when you were in Silicon Valley. Do you start a company when you were there? Uh, No, I started after I came back. So uh, after coming back from uh, the Valley, I co-founded E27, uh, which at the time was more grassroots. So it was me and a bunch of uh, my seniors from NOC as well, we came together and we, in Singapore, there was no event or meetup group to bring like-minded uh, individuals together. So we thought, why not just organize some informal events to bring people together who were interested in Web 2.0 back in the day. And, and slowly, each event started doubling in size. So the first event was like 20 people, then it was 40 people, then it was 80. Before we knew it, it was like 500 people. We were getting sponsorships and all this stuff. Uh, so it was quite quite a crazy um experience to be able to start something from from scratch really um, um but i would say that was more a passion project uh similar to you and why you're doing this uh, for me it was just about bringing the community together sharing and learning uh as we were you know very nascent as web technology back in the day was in singapore mm, right yeah definitely love what e27 uh was doing getting people together the whole kind of the whole startup scene was not as huge today, but it was really growing, right? It was at the start of the trajectory, right? Any any experience in during the one year stint, right, in Silicon Valley help you to kind of put the drive, right, and the passion to really bring um the community together or to be to be really keen in a startup space? I think in the Valley, E27 was a concept that or was a brand that we were exposed to in the Valley. So it was a 
a friend of ours has started E27 in the Valley, Entrepreneur 27, as it was originally called. And it was an unconference format and concept, which we found super interesting. So you bring people together. There's no formal agenda on topics to talk about. People, you know, come to the conference or come to the unconference and, and write down what they're interested to talk about. And then people vote with their feet, right? So it's a very real-time, very dynamic sort of format. And people are just coming in, presenting, sharing ideas. Uh, and it was it was so inspiring for me to see you know, somewhat organized chaos happening, but people still getting a lot of takeaways and inspiration from those events. So that was something that inspired us and we brought it to, to Singapore. So I would say E27 was sort of my first foray into starting something. While I was doing E27, you know, for me, that was, like I said, a side hustle, right? Like something that I was just passionate about. I started my first product company, which was Homespace. So it was a real estate search engine back in you know two thousand seven. So we were we started around the same time as uh, Property Guru, and we were competing with uh, Property Guru essentially to bring newspaper classifieds to the digital era. So I think right idea, right timing. Uh, but it was my first true experience into actually starting and running a company. I think one of my key learnings in that business was that Silicon Valley, the U.S. market is so big, right? So you, if you throw something out there that is somewhat okay, uh, you have enough users to be able to build sufficient traction uh, to the product because the market, the market is just so big. Compared to Singapore, that mentality of like build a good product and people will naturally discover it, find it, and use it doesn't really hold true because you need to have sort of a minimum scale and a level of traction in order to make things work, I would say. So fast forward a year, did that for a year. You know, I got four other co-founders, some of which had graduated. I was still in my final year uh, in, in NUS. Um, yeah, I really like, okay, I know I'm going to start something. So I just do the minimum to graduate and get a degree while, while spending the rest of my time building this company. And so a year in, you know, my co-founders were facing parental pressure to get a real job and make some real money. We were obviously not getting uh, you know, paid during that period. Uh, and Property Guru was also kind of taking off at that point in time. And so for me, because I just graduated, you know, I was like, wow, I've got my first startup failure under my belt. How do I use one of the lessons that I've learned from this one year, which was very painful in the scheme of things, right? Back then, you know, it was like, oh, I worked so hard for years, sleepless nights, build a great product and to not have it Workout is, is painful, but I was like, on balance, I've just graduated. I can afford to take one more risk. What are the lessons I've learned and how do I take that forward to the next thing that I do? And that's really how Money Spot was born. Wow. Wow. What a story. Uh, you know, it's not easy to have a second round, a second chance. So sometimes, you know, people fail and then, and then just, okay, let's get a job. But you took the lessons from the failure and apply it in Money Smart. So share with us with the day one, right, of Money Smart. How did that idea even come about? Uh, good question. So actually it came about from, uh, from my time at, at Homespace. So because I was, uh, in the real estate industry, I actually got my real estate, uh, license, uh, just to know the ins and outs and, and how the, the, in, the industry works. And one thing I realized was that after people bought their home, the next big problem is getting their loan, their mortgage. Uh, it's the biggest loan that everybody will take in their life. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, minor adjustments in interest rates actually have tens of thousands of dollars of impact uh, over the lifetime of uh, of your loan. And 
when people were uh, trying to get their mortgage, it was a very opaque process for consumers. So if you wanted to find out uh, you know, how much DBS was charging for their mortgage interest rate, you had to call the hotline, wait to be passed over to a mortgage banker. The banker will size you up. If you're not so savvy, they quote you a higher interest rate because they have uh, they earn higher commissions, the more expensive uh, package they, they sell you. And um, being on the real estate agent side of things, you know, seeing how that conversation happened, there was a lot of funny business going on. So uh, bankers would say, hey, refer your customers to me. Don't worry, I'll do all the sales. I'll convince them to take my package, even though it's not the best rate in the market. And, and that really frustrated me because the, the people who are supposed to be representing your interests, ultimately at the end of the day, uh, uh, just care about their own. <laughs> Uh, their own interests primarily, right? They they do this to earn a living, and they have to do what they have to do in order to uh, uh to put food on the table. Um, but I saw an opportunity to bring transparency into the market, uh, run the numbers for consumers, so they're not confused by all these terms and jargons and, and what it actually means when it comes down to dollars and cents. And that's how Money Smart got started. We started off with mortgage uh, mortgage comparison. Got it. Got it. I really love the point of bringing transparency. Right, um, you know, I think it's really, really important where consumers today, uh, in this era, really want to make decisions based on insights, uh, based on data, right? Uh, compared to maybe our parents' age, it's different. They they build trust with the person and, and just trust anything that the agent says. But today, yeah. we all want to make decisions based <laughs> yeah. on what we see, right? Uh, or what we understand or what we analyze, even right. Um, yeah. cool. So tell us a bit more about you know founding or even running a company, uh, as a sole founder, right? What is the biggest challenge? Because I always hear, you know, like, is it tough to run a company by yourself um, or with a team of three or two or four? What is the biggest challenge or hurdle? And how do you overcome them? As a sole founder, I would say has its pros and cons. Uh, I think on the pros, uh, you don't need consensus to drive a vision and direction forward. Like, you're the ultimate decision uh, maker. You don't need to convince anyone. Basically, if you're convinced and that's the direction, Everybody else is kind of an employee, right? Like, of course, you, you, you try and get them along for the ride, but you don't bump into, you know, co-founder dynamics where there isn't 100% uh, alignment in that sense. Um, the con is obviously that it's very lonely. So when you have an idea, sometimes uh, you want to articulate it. You need to bounce it off someone. Uh, you can talk to friends and family, but it's they don't have the full context of, you know, the situation that you're in, right? And so having a co-founder who's in the trenches with you makes that journey um, less lonely. Uh, so while I started Money Smart by myself, I would say a year in, I, I did have, uh, uh, you know, a partner join and, and a co-founder join the company uh, one year after starting the business. Uh, he stayed on for, for four years before before leaving. So I had sort of a mix of both worlds, if that makes any sense. <laughs> you know, being a sole founder sort of at the very beginnings, but then uh, being able to build, uh, build a team. Uh, and that's my philosophy today, right? Uh, you can still be a sole founder, but the most important thing is to build a strong management team. They don't have to be co-founders per se, but you have to build a solid uh, management team that's aligned with uh, with your with your vision. Mm, yeah, totally agree. Building a strong management team that also builds a culture, right, and also a structure process as yep. well for everybody to really 
um, you look up to the culture and, and to build outcomes, right? Deliver outcomes, right? Um, yeah. Definitely pros and cons. Uh, definitely there are ups and downs. Was there a point, you know, that you wanted to to give up? Was it so challenging that you kind of threw a tower? Could you share with us how you feel, you know, at a point of time? Many points. I think, you know, back in the day when we were starting, the VC landscape is nothing like it is today, right? The first four years of Money Spot was completely bootstrapped. So I put in the last $5,000 of my saving to start the company. And one of the lessons I learned from HomeSpace was you need a business model from day one because there's no, there's no funding, right? Uh, unlike Silicon Valley where, you know, back then you, there was a lot more easier access to capital. In Paul, there was none of that. And so if you didn't make money on day one, there's no way for you to, you know, draw a salary, to invest in hiring a team and so on. So uh, first four years of Money Smart was completely bootstrapped. And with being a bootstrap company comes challenges, right? Like you miss your numbers for a while, your cash balance goes low, you know. There were points where we were close to running out of cash and I had to forego uh, you know, it was a very low salary. It was like 2K or something. But I had to forgo that to make sure that my staff could get paid, right? That for, for me, my responsibility is to ensure that my, my employees get paid uh, first. We were also very fortunate to have really strong support from NUS. So back in the early days, we were incubated in the garage, Prince George's Park. NUS was so kind to offer that space to us rent-free. So that supported with costs. And when we were facing challenges with like cash flow i mean we're already sort of revenue generating but we're also trying to expand and grow into new financial verticals and us was was really generous to extend like a loan facility uh, to us and then that was able to bridge us to our seed round of financing where we were able to you know repay the loan and then we had a bit more capacity to invest in and grow the business further so it's challenging, I would say. My advice to founders and entrepreneurs, particularly as you're getting started, is you know keep an eye on, on numbers, right? That uh, survivability is the, the most important thing and, and discipline and attention to how you are spending your cash is the most important thing. Yep. Well, cash flow, right? Cash flow is so important. Um, and, and you spoke about su- survivability or even profitability at times, right? How did profitability, profitability sit in your in your strategy or in your roadmap of growing the yeah. company? So I think my approach has been raise money so that you have capital to invest. You invest the capital, but then you get the company to a milestone where it's break-even or profitable. So every time I'm raising funds, it is to grow the business, but then the, the end milestone of that point is that we should have a bigger business that's also break-even or profitable. So that way, you, you don't always get into get used to this idea of uh, raising money to keep spending where your top line grows but your losses widen you know a lot of we see a lot of companies do that i was very counterculture for the time because i was i believe very strongly in building a strong solid business with with solid sort of fundamentals but that wasn't the way uh, a lot of VCs thought, right? They're like, oh, why are you going so slowly? Why, don't care about profitability, you know, just spend more money and focus on top line growth. But, you know, in markets like this, where we have maintained P&L discipline over the years, we don't find ourselves having to cut staff. We don't have to find ourselves, you know, in having to take sort of drastic action just because investor sentiment has, has turned. Mm, yeah, we love your, your strategy or concept of, profitability and, and really it's either you kind of 
you raise funds and you get break even and you raise funds again. I think that is really a good kind of sanity check sometimes, yep. right? If not, you grow, grow and grow and then basically lost that track of profitability, which we see quite common in the yeah. tech scene today. So let's, let's talk about <laughs> expansion, right? I mean, I, I saw moneysmart.sg, yep. but I realized that there's also moneysmart in other regions, other countries. Could you share with us when do you start venturing out of Singapore and when, when, when is the right time to do that? So we started going outside of Singapore in 2015. Our first international market was Indonesia and we did that via an acquisition of a local player back in 2015. We've since divested that business, so we sold that off to another company. Long story short, it was a challenging market for us. And what we've learned is that, particularly in our industry, it doesn't apply across the board. In our industry, there are a lot of local nuances across markets. And so just because we have a successful business in one market, if you go to another market, the dynamics might be different. So how much we get paid from banks, for example, are very different in, in Indonesia, cost of customer acquisition is actually relatively a lot higher in Indonesia because everything is not automated. So you require call center staff, you require a courier person, you know, sales cycles are longer and we're in sort of a consumer goods space, right? Those are dynamics that don't sit well with our business model and the scale of, of monetization that, that we have. Uh, and so as a result, we decided to focus more on mature developed markets and so right now we have a presence in primarily in singapore and hong kong with a light footprint in taiwan as well as as potentially the next market that we're the right time to expand i would say is when you've gotten your first store right or your first market right when you look at the numbers and you go like okay revenue is growing well you know the the investments that we've made on how we uh, grow our customer base or top line is working well. Margins are kind of healthy and you have a repeatable formula that you think you can take to uh, to another market. Uh, no international space will be 100% kind of like for like, but you want to at least be able to get to a level of confidence where 70%, 70 to 80% is part of your home market playbook. And then 20-30% is localized to the market, then I think that's a good mix of uh, you know, when when you're when you can consider sort of scaling to new markets. Got it, got it. And and scaling scaling to new markets, right? Um, what is the difference between acquiring a company, right, in, in the market that is that has a footprint already, or setting up a team to penetrate into the market? Uh, I think speed is the main thing. So you know, if you are starting a market from that, like we've done we've done both, right? We've done organic and inorganic uh, acquisition, uh, and there are pros and cons of both approaches. So, with Indonesia, I had done a bit of research on Indo, and uh, I recognized that it was hard to find good talent. You know, there are a lot of like local loopholes and regulations around how to structure employment contracts and stuff like that, right? And uh, you know, if you have even setting up an entity there is not so straightforward, right? You have all these uh, local versus foreign ownership laws and so on. So uh, in that, at that time, we saw uh, acquisition as a faster route to market. Uh, and we opportunistically acquired a company that we wasn't doing too well, uh, but had the team set up, had the corporate structure set up. And we thought, you know, hey, we've got the playbook. They've got the team. It's a good value acquisition for us because they're not doing well. So we were able to buy it relatively inexpensively. 
um, and and then apply our playbook to to grow the market, uh, which which we did. And in you know by not everything played out according to plan, but I would say when we when we acquired the business, they were doing I don't know ten thousand in traffic. When we sold the business, uh, we were doing uh, ten million uh, in in traffic on a monthly basis. So some of our playbooks and strategies around uh, scaling customer acquisition and stuff really work. But sometimes, you know, when you when you look at the full funnel kind of end to end, the numbers don't make sense. And that's why we decided to to that we had optimized everything we can optimize. And if the numbers still don't make sense and you don't see a path to that changing, then then that's time to cut your losses and, and kind of pull out. Right, right, right. Thanks for sharing. Um, and thanks for sharing so many lessons, right? For the past uh, about 25 minutes, uh, was, it was all very, very insightful lessons. I asked you the question, what is the most, 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 most painful lesson you have learned being a founder? Painful lesson? I don't know if I have a painful lesson. I've, I have many, um, I would say, I wouldn't say it's a painful lesson, but it's something that I was fortunate enough to get advice and mentorship on. And so I was able to, to some extent, prevent it from, from happening. Uh, and I was able to kind of think ahead. Uh, a lot of founders, uh, particularly if you're starting from scratch, are also doers. <laughs> Right, so we like to get our hands dirty. We like to be involved in product. We're also the front base when it comes to commercial discussions. You know, you are by definition the MVP because you are the vision creator. <laughs> you're you're making stuff uh, happen. Uh, but I think as a company scales, um, you have to think about putting systems in place, and you only have twenty four hours in a day, right? And understanding that it's a marathon, not a sprint. And at some point you have to put the right systems and structures in place so that you can operate where you're managing the business, not managing yourself. Uh, I think it's a, a, a critical thing that needs to happen. Uh, and then once you start looking at this as sort of a business owner, then you know, okay, here are the levers. This is the strategy. This is the direction. Uh, make sure you have competent people, uh, trusted leaders in each of those domains. Ensure that you have the right culture so that all these people can work cohesively together to achieve a singular vision and goal, I would say, is uh, something that I've seen many founders kind of not transition to, uh, where they're still, you know, even at a 200-person company, 300-person company, they are still the MVP out there, front-leading sort of conversations and stuff, rather than setting up systems that can scale, right? Because um, the, the problem is that if you, there's no succession plan, right? So if you want to take a break, uh, which I did many times, you know, I was on my honeymoon doing calls, uh, you know, with, with the team, uh, it, it's, it's not fun, right? And at some point, if you burn out and you can't, you don't have the headspace to think ahead and drive the vision, um, then you can't lead the team, right? And that, that's when everything starts kind of uh, falling apart. So uh, I would say, you know, as, as far as possible, try and transition to thinking more that you're managing a system rather than being a player in that system, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing. Um, I think you really mentioned these challenges of scaling up, having systems, processes, the right structure uh, and the right culture. Right, I think this is a good segue of talking about building a positive and a thriving 
culture. And I realized the problem in techs, in companies generally, right? There, there are silos, right? When you grow the teams. How do you really break down these silos and you know, improve collaboration between teams? So I think from culture point of view, I've developed a mantra, you know, a very short statement that I think encapsulates what I'm trying to build at Money Spot, which is a pitch to employees, right? I said, you know, we want to create an environment where people can do work that they love with people they care about to achieve results and make an impact together. And in that statement, there is a focus on the individual, but there's also a focus on accountability to results. And more importantly, that your results matter in the bigger scheme of things, right? That all this, it doesn't matter that you got one particular report on time or you wrote, you know, the copywriter wrote really great copy if that didn't result in translating to business results at the end of the day. And that's where the team collaboration kind of comes in because no one person winning is a team sport, right? In a tech company, you need the marketing team, you need the product team, you need, you know, a sales team. Everything needs to come together cohesively in order to achieve your results. So that's sort of the philosophy of the the, the culture. And, And the thing that gets in the way is politics, right? Where you have individuals who are kind of, uh, you know, not team first, they're I first. And and that's when, you know, they're like, oh, uh, talking about somebody behind their back unjustifiably. I mean, sometimes you need to have those people conversations, but my sort of approach is, have you had a conversation with that person, right? If you're unhappy with them, like, don't come to me, go talk to them. Right. And if you need me to facilitate a conversation, I'll, I'm glad to facilitate it. I'm glad to advise you on how to have that conversation. But none of this, like, you know, whispering behind the back, give that person the feedback directly. So that is the number one sort of uh, antidote to creating a culture that's kind of not political. And when you discover politics in an organization, you have to, you have to, you have to kill it. Right. Which means talking to the person to make sure that they're aware of their behaviors and that it's not acceptable. But if that's not possible, sometimes it's so ingrained, right? People come from all sorts of different places and environments. And in some other companies, they may have had to be political to survive, but that's not how we, we operate here. So, you know, if you can't coach them into not being political, then they, they have to go. They're not, a, they're not a culture fit. And on your point on breaking down silos, my approach is it's about setting up systems of communication where everybody is aware of what everybody else is kind of doing. So for us, we do, there's a cascade of communications that happen at different levels to make sure that the org is completely in sync with what's happening at the appropriate level. Um, So we have a monthly all hands where we share how we're progressing against uh, our targets, uh, you know, what are the uh, state statuses of the key initiatives that we are working on. What are the wins? What are also the challenges that we are facing? Right? What 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 hasn't gone according to plan? Um, and and so that gives everyone visibility across the group as to you know, hey, we said as part of the plan we're going to work on these three things. Here is how those three things are happening and progressing. Some things are not going well. Hey, I need help. If you have any ideas, come in. That's where you foster sort of uh, collaboration and stuff. Uh, And then cascading from that, we have smaller team meetings, right? So within each initiative, there is a leadership team driving that forward. And then we have certain forums where cross-leadership teams share what they're working on as well. Uh, But most importantly, if you want to 
break down silos, at the top, the Exco have to be 100% in sync. Uh, what I've realized is that if the top leadership and top management are not in sync, small misalignments cascade down to the org in a massive way. Uh, you know, they're like, oh, this person said one thing, but then they all hands, you know, uh, they said something else and, and the leadership is not in sync, right? So we, we believe in documenting everything down. So we have very clear uh, sort of strategy. Everybody weighs in to that process, right? So, but once the strategy is locked in, it's, it's locked in. We don't change it unless we learn new information that warrants us to update it and make it even better. Uh, but the time to disagree and debate about it is over. This is the plan and this is what we're doing, right? Uh, and that's how you drive uh, sort of transparency and accountability uh, and a positive culture uh, in Money Smart. Wow, this is really golden, really, really good advice and, and how to break silos collaboration. And I, I hear about you know, transparency, communication and alignment as well. Cross teams, leadership alignment, definitely super critical in the whole company success. Definitely, definitely plus 100 to that. So given this, you know, positive culture and thriving culture in Money Smart, what's next, you know, in the next, say, two years or five years even? What was interesting was COVID was a challenging time for us as, as it was with many businesses, right? One thing we realized was that, you know, while Money Smart is a, a really good resourceful platform for a lot of consumers to kind of come to, we realized that ultimately we were uh, almost like a Google search engine, right, which is you use it and then you you find what you're looking for and then you go away. So we didn't really have a opportunity to truly engage our customers and own our customers through uh through their lifetime, right? You come back to Money Smart kind of infrequently, but there wasn't really an embedded relationship between us and our users or our customers. Um so coming out of COVID, um, you know, we we asked ourselves the question, how do we make the business more resilient for the future? And and the key theme around that was really about how do we truly own our customers? And so we have launched two big sort of new business initiatives. One is MoneySpot member program called MoneySpot Plus, which is rewards MoneySpot users with even more rewards and benefits uh, for being a member, right? So you, you sign up for a free profile, you get to buy electronic products from Apple, uh, Samsung, Sony, and so on, pretty much at wholesale prices. Uh, as a consumer benefit. And we were able to do that because we can negotiate at scale with them because of you know all the campaigns and stuff that we run on our credit card promotions. More and more uh, sort of features are being added to that to make it even more worth for customers to develop an ongoing relationship with us. The second proposition is Bubblegum, which is our own brand of financial products. So we realized that we sit on a treasure trove of data, consumer behavior, knowing how people are making product decisions on our platform. And we know what our customers want. And the biggest challenge with financial products falls down to distribution, which you know we, we know how to do customer acquisition really, really well. And so we thought, why not go further down the value chain, design really great value products for our customers and revolutionize the customer experience and journey, which is still very much broken today when it comes to insurance. Uh, especially. And so that's a new brand called Bubblegum. You know, our take on what insurance should be in 2022. And we're very excited to be launching very soon. Nice, nice, nice. Looking forward to that uh, launch on Bubblegum and also on that rewards program. 
I can see that lots of lots of things are happening on Money Smart. Uh, in fact, I just signed up for a Citibank card on the uh, oh, Money nice. Smart. <laughs> Thank uh, you. On the cashback plus. <laughs> I awesome. saw that on, on Facebook and then uh, I was like, hey, try it out. And really, really, really smooth and easy process to get it. Like within, I would say like one minute or so, it's like, boom, that form is filled up and everything's automated. Yeah. Email coming in and go to the Citibank and all that. So like, definitely, every, if you're listening to this, do try out, uh, try out, sign up, uh, lo- lots of benefits, lots of free, lots of rebates <laughs> and also items, uh, yeah. when you sign up for credit cards and all that. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, just a last few questions as we wrap up this sure. uh, episode. Um, just circling back to the annual experience. Um, what is one word that you would describe your experience in the annual services college and why? I would say I'm blessed <laughs> to be chosen. It was really an amazing experience. Honestly, when I was chosen for the program, I looked at a lot of my peers who got selected as well. They all came from, you know, top tier JCs. I came from a poly background, right? So I was like, wow, these guys have resumes. They've started companies before. Here I am sort of, uh, you know, being the, the kind of underdog. So I'm really, really grateful that I was one of the few that were selected for, for the program. And it was truly eye-opening and inspirational. I wouldn't say NOC teaches you how to be an entrepreneur. You know, a lot of the lessons on actually running a company, you don't really learn. You can't learn by observation or by, you know, reading a book or uh, going for classes. You just have to do it. But as far as NOC is concerned, I think the, the most important thing was it gave me the confidence to do it. And so for that, I'm blessed because if I didn't have the inspiration, I may not be you know, to take that first step, I may not be uh, where I am today. So that's my one word. Well said, well said. Blessed. Awesome, awesome. And to the listeners, you know, listening to this episode who are hustling every day, even they're starting up or, or in their companies in, as entrepreneurs, what is one piece of advice you would like to give to these listeners? I would say be confident in yourself and your views. You know, get advice, seek input from, from others, but at the end of the day, don't take anything kind of wholesale and just apply it because somebody else told you so trust your gut like seek advice but don't be don't be stubborn seek advice from others but then at the end of the day it's your call right you will hear everybody has their own two cents to chip into it Uh, but if you're convicted and you believe in in what you're doing then go ahead and pursue your ambitions and your dreams that would be my advice awesome awesome pursue our dreams pursue our passion right and this is a wrap um, thank you, Vin, for your yeah. time. It's really, really an honor to have you on our podcast and to share this insightful gems you know, and, and nuggets, right? I think this is, this is really awesome. Thank you so much, Vin. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you for tuning in to Your Grit Story Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. Chase your dreams, live out your passion, and discover your grit story.